Greetings and aloha, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Holistic Human Optimization Show. I am your host, Ronnie Landis, and this is episode number two of series two on life force principles. I am so excited that we are finally diving into series two, and our first episode was the life force principles of the three treasure philosophy which comes um, out of Taoist tonic herbalism. And uh, that that's something that I have been talking about, hinting at, alluding to, and integrating into all of my work over all these years of doing this work and something that I've been really trying to get across to people because, you know, and, and it, it fits into our talk today because one of the things that, well, there's a few things that I want to talk about real quick here. One of them is that in our current health and wellness, pseudo longevity, hyper scientific culture and very mechanistic culture, there is an incredible benefit, an incredible advantageous thing about the technology, the, the, the advantage of being able to do all of the incredible things that we can and what we can discover based on, on this combination of nature and technology. In other words, biotech, and I don't mean biotech from like the traditional biotech companies um, like nanotech or Neuralink or any of that kind of thing, but biotech in the, the form of, you know, the, 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 the combination of biological optimization and technological optimization for the sole purpose of enhancing and accelerating our ability to learn information and to progress quicker and to actually create more of a holistic frame of uh, well-being through all the things that we have access to and uh, the way that we can construct our lifestyle. One of the things, though, with this is that we can lose sense of where we've been and we can lose sense of more of the intuitive and ancient practices of the wisdom keepers that came far before any kind of technological um, evolution that we've ever had and have also mastered the life force principles of longevity, of transformation, of liberation, consciousness, mastering the physical body and really have developed themselves in ways that most people, even with our technological advantage, have not and haven't even scratched the surface of. So it's almost like we have to go back to the inner engineering components of the great Taoist tonic herbal masters and the great Ayurvedic and yogic masters and the great shamans and the great um, just the great herbalists and alchemists that came long before that laid the foundation for everything that we now have access to. And that is a huge reason why I always like to bring in the Taoist teachings into the fold. I like to bring in the wisdom teachings from the great Vedic system and the yogic masters, which is what we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk, we're going to talk about certain components of the Vedic system, the Ayurvedic medicinal system of medicine, of healing, of diet, and of lifestyle optimization, essentially. And we're going to really focus in on the eight-limb 
system of yoga, particularly the five yamas that come out of that system. We're going to go through that. One of the things that I think is so powerful is that not only do we get to know and we should know about the principles and practices of developing physical health, but we also need to know about the philosophical principles of developing mental, emotional, and spiritual congruency. And that's a lot about what the yogic principles of the eight limbs are really about. They're about helping us develop a moral, ethical code of conduct that's in integrity with the journey of self-love, the journey of self-liberation and self-mastery. It's not so much an ethical code based on social constructs and how we need to show up in the world. It's about how do we develop inner resilience, inner reliance, inner mastery, regardless of what's going on in the world and what society says or doesn't say, because oftentimes the tenets and ethics of society are contrary to the ethics and the tenets of the soul. And so this is where having a foundational code of conduct is so important that is aligned with the principles of self-mastery, liberation, and transformation. And the, the yogic lineage is particularly amazing for that, if not anything else, which there is a lot, there is a lot more. But what's great about the Hindu culture and the Ayurvedic culture and the yogic culture as a whole is that we're talking about systems that are at least 5,000 years old in recorded, documented history, but most likely go far back and back, like most things I would say that we think like, oh, this is 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years old. That is, uh, that is true, and that's all we know based on documentation, the records, the tablets, the organization of the memoirs that were left behind. But prior to that, there was probably a whole fleet of experiences and non-documented experiences or documented practices that might have uh, been lost in translation or might have been destroyed um, for one reason or another. There's so many things that have occurred in our ancestry, in our history, that we have no idea about and quite honestly have been fabricated, that have been diluted and have been mistranslated to steer us awry. And so now we're, what we're doing here is that as we create the future through an evolutionary lifestyle, what we need to thrive into the future. One of the things we need to thrive is we need wisdom. We need the wisdom of the ancients. And so as we combine these principles and these great pers perspectives of the past, one other thing I want to say, particularly about the Ayurvedic system, and this is just my own thing. Some people disagree, and that's totally fine. But one of the things, and this also goes for the, the Chinese system as well, because one thing I'll say about both of these systems is that I don't particularly agree with their dietary advice. And I've gotten into some interesting debates or uh, debacles with um, not so much Ayurvedic people, but um, you know, people in the, the Chinese medicine, the hyper, like kind of rigid Chinese medicine box, where you know it's like it's a certain box, and then you know, 
the whole food piece gets really interesting because these systems have incredible herbal practices, the best herbal practices and tonic herbal practices in the world by far. Absolutely solid. I completely agree with all of those principles. Um, but then when it comes to like the actual diet, the Ayurvedic diet to me, um, it, it makes sense based on that culture and based on the the menu board of availability that that culture had and how they were, you know, what they were doing all this time. I get that. I totally understand it. Um, but compared to the vast the vast array of options that we have now, particularly with living foods and superfoods. Um, I just want to give the listener um, a little perspective and just so you don't get confused, because if you get into Ayurveda, then you'll start kind of getting into like the dosha system and the gunas, the gunas dietary system, which we're going to talk about a little bit. And you might get confused because then it's like, well, what do I do about living foods? Because everything they're talking about is pretty much like, highly cooked food it's like all cooked food and it's like a heavy focus on that and so i just want to like break that down a little bit because the the ayurvedic dietary systems have great principles like the gunas are great principles the doshas are great principles that have a a road map that give you a bit of an overview and insight into particular tendencies that you might want to follow, but the specific food advice is something that I wouldn't actually personally follow, though, and this goes largely for the Chinese system as well, and I know some people are going to listen to this and be like, how could you say that? Well, my personal direct experience is what is calling me to say this, and just studying all the different systems around the world, just because a system has thousands of years of history, and they have some of the most advanced alternative natural healing and and herbal modalities and principles and wisdom around that doesn't mean the basic food options are very good because when you look at the indian culture as a whole um it's not the it's not the healthiest it's not the healthiest culture and there's a there's a huge tendency towards diabetes i've noticed as well so i'm just putting this all out on the table um, not as a specific thing. This is more of a general observation that I've noticed. And I don't want to knock the Ayurvedic system or the Indian culture at all because there's so many beautiful things that are that come out of it. And that's what I want to really just – I want to extract out of everything right here for you. And you can use these principles to enhance and further optimize your evolutionary dietary strategy using the wisdom of living foods and vegan vegetarianism and superfoods and herbalism and supplementation and all the things that we have available that they just did not have available in their day and age. And that's something that we have to keep in, keep in mind too. There's no judgment here. This is just rational observation of, of the times in which these, these doctrines and a lot of times these dogmas – or what becomes dogma, but at the time was just these were systems that were created to help people develop a systemized approach to lifestyle. They were designed for people that were healing and needed to get into a basic state of health. So these dietary systems can help you stay in like a basic state of health, but they're not going to help you go to invincible health. But their, their herbal knowledge in the 
the philosophy of life that comes out of this system in particular will help you towards invincible health. Um, particularly the, the psycho-emotional and spiritual practices, as well as the movement practices of the great yogic systems and the code of conduct in which we can direct our life force energy, which is what the series is all about. So thanks for bearing with me on that. I wanted, I've been wanting to get these kind of thoughts out for a long time. And uh, as I was preparing for this episode, I had to go through two of my books a little bit to re-review a lot of information that I put down specifically out of the Vedic system um, that I haven't gone over in a while. So let's start with the gunas of Ayurvedic. And these are the Ayurvedic principles of diet. And they call this the, the gunas. So, you know, I was going through my book that I put out about five years ago, the Holistic Health Mastery Program, and I wrote a bit of a, a bit of a thing on this. It's quite in-depth. And it's in the chapter called Eating for Your Function. And that's one of my main focuses, by the way, is that you have to eat for your function, right? Not just eat for your, your preference, but you have to eat for your, your level of activity, for your, your life circumstance. For example, if you are a pregnant mother or you're wanting to become pregnant or you, were just, you just conceived a child – um, there's different functions and different forms for how you should eat. That's very key and, and important. So this is really what the gunas talk about. And uh, so let's get into it. So there's three different eating styles based on intention. The first one is the tamazic diet, which is more of a hunter-warrior-based diet, which most of the world operates today from. So the way that they explain it in the spiritual texts is this is a survival diet for indigenous humans and in most cases rooted in addiction and gluttony for the modern human. That's a pretty strong statement. Um, let's go a little bit deeper into what that means or what that can mean. So the foundation of the standard American food supply is based on a tamazic food um, system, which according to the Vedic wisdom promotes energies of doubt, pessimism, and lethargy, uh, these foods can be very stimulating during consumption, but end up weighing the body down, obstructing what's called the kundalini life force continuity and weakening one's ojas. So ojas is like vigor. It's the equivalent of the, the three treasure jing. It's your vigor. It's your, your, your willpower, your adrenal energy. So tamazic foods in the Ayurvedic understanding are quote-unquote low-quality foods, which translates into low-quality consciousness. So your food affects your consciousness. Um, in the Sanskrit language, which is the ancient Hindu language, there is a famous phrase, the subtle energies of your food become your mind. The subtle energies of your food become your mind. So that's kind of really the whole point and basis of the gunas is that different foods and different categories and foods and eating styles denote certain energies that ultimately affect consciousness. So finishing up on this, tamazic foods are considered dry, old, or outdated, distasteful, decaying, and absent of life force. That's pretty strong. So these foods include excessively processed, canned, pasteurized, microwave, genetically modified, chemically laced, demineralized, and excessively hybridized foods. 
This also includes all conventionally raised flesh foods, including poultry, beef, fish, chicken, duck, lamb, eggs, hormonally altered, homogenized, and heat-treated dairy products. So in essence, tamazic foods in this definition are basically the standard American foods of civilization. They're processed foods, dead foods, foods that really aren't actually food at all. They're just substances, food-like byproducts that we can all categorize in the, the, the sad diet, the standard American diet. And that promotes more of a, a warrior, hyper-competitive type of nature. The second guna is rajasic. And the rajasic diet is meant for those who live a very active and on-the-go lifestyle. So, so this is the middle ground here. This is, this is like, if you want to call it a warrior, this would be like the conscious warrior. Someone who's very active, like an athlete. Someone who has a healthy, active lifestyle. This is considered by yogic principles to be very stimulating and potentially mind-body imbalancing depending on one's own constitution. So that's when they get into the doshas based on your own unique constitution. Those who are athletes, fitness enthusiasts, entrepreneurs, entertainers, world travelers, and those who work full-time in a demanding occupation would adhere to this form of diet. This is not designed for those who are seeking spiritual enlightenment through solitude and meditation. This is designed for those who live a life of action as well as wish to lighten the load on the body through minimizing animal products and processed foods. So I go on to to explain in my book, The Holistic Health Mastery Program, on this point. From From a raw food perspective... I would also include over 20 to 30% cooked food as a detriment to the what's called Agni. So it's the metabolic fire. Agni would be the equivalent to the Chi in the Three Treasures. Um, the detriment to the Agni, one is capable of expressing on this type of diet. Um, so what I'm saying is that when you have too much cooked food, it, 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 it basically it weakens your digestive fire. Right, your internal fire, your gastric acid, your gastric acids, or in this case, your agni, your metabolic fire. Um, rajasic foods are very hot, bitter, sour, dry, and/or salty when consumed in ratio to the other flavors that would work for one's constitution or their unique metabolism. These foods can be heart protective, increase blood flow, so vasodilative liver protective, increased digestive fire slash stomach acid, and balanced blood pressure. In the Chinese medical system, they would also consider this diet very yang. So remember, we talked about yin and yang dynamics in the last episode, which denotes more masculine and heating energies, including green vegetable juices, green leafy salads, water-rich fruits, coconut water, and yin jing herbs, to help balance overt yang heating energies in the diet. So as an example, rajasic foods include hot spices, strong bitter herbs, uh, even to the extent of fish, eggs, salt, cacao, um, stimulating substances such as coffee, yerba mate, green tea, and anything that increases vasodilation, otherwise known as blood flow, or stimulates the central nervous system such as caffeine. Okay, so that's a pretty deep dive into that. So 
as you can see, what I mentioned here is really a balanced approach to an ancient principle that otherwise would be almost entirely a cook food approach based on the Ayurvedic system of diet. But now we're adding in green vegetable juicing, green leafy salads, water-rich fruits, coconut water, and yin jing herbs, which is traditionally a Chinese perspective. And we're bringing these things in so we can we can create an evolved, emergent form of lifestyle based on the ancient principles here. Now, the last guna is this would be the equivalent to the Shen perspective in Chinese medicine. So it's the Sattvic diet. I've had long conversations with one of my mentors and colleagues, Dr. Gabriel Cousins, who I'm about to mention actually right here. So let me get through this for all of you. The sattvic diet is ultimately the ideal lifestyle for most practicing yogis, monks, devoted meditators, creative writers, artists, and those interested in experiencing different realms of spiritual exploration. Dr. Gabriel Cousins' book, Spiritual Nutrition, was largely based on this concept eating for spiritual enlightenment and maturity. The principles in Chinese medicine of yin-yang are based on a unified field of opposites magnetically bound to one another through dynamic polarity. Remember we talked about the hermetic principle of gender in the, the, the unification of opposites in our last, our last episode. Funny that that just showed up here. Many people assume uh, balance in all things and believe equilibrium means 50% yin, 50% yang. This is actually inaccurate and a great misunderstanding of natural order. It is 80% yin, 20% yang as the life force reaches its peak of maturation and one has learned to circulate the kundalini energy appropriately for its intended purpose. That's that's powerful. That's a potent perspective right there. The sattvic foods, in essence, tone the yin fluids, such as blood, lymph, cerebral, spinal, seminal, and vaginal fluids. The purpose of this diet is to reach higher states of self-awareness, patience, and compassion. Foods that are too stimulating, according to the Ayurvedic principles, Throw off the mind-body balance and interrupt the alignment of spiritual energies. Sattvic foods include fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh juices, unpasteurized milk, so raw milk, butter, and cheese, uh, which is, I wouldn't necessarily agree with it, but this is their, their principles. Legumes, nut seeds, I would say sprouted. Bee products, including honey, propolis, pollen, and royal jelly, and non-stimulating herbal teas. So finally, from a scientific and plant-based perspective, an important distinction is that cow's butter, milk, and cheese are extremely mucus-forming and inflammatory based on casein protein content. So ghee butter is a traditional alchemical form of purified butter that extracts the casein protein and lactose fat molecule, making it non-allergenic and easily digestible. I only recommend ghee butter from pasture-raised cows and raw dairy products from well-treated pasture-raised goats. Okay, so thanks for going through that with me. I felt that was critical perspective and a bit of information to, to really go into any, any real download on the Ayurvedic wisdom 
that's an important thing to understand because it's a huge it's a huge point of reference for really the intentionality of why they focused on diet beyond just health. You know, it's also it's about spiritual enlightenment, it's about focus, about consciousness. That is the point of all of this for for them. You know, so to understand where they're coming from. Now, um, then <clears throat> the last thing is you have the doshas. Now, I'm not going to go into that. That's beyond the point of what I want to go into. You have kapha, pitta, and vata. These are things that you can research more on your own. Um, not as important to me personally, although the elemental aspect of that I think is interesting and, and worth noting. Um, I'm more interested in the, the moral, energetic code of self-mastery, which is what I want to go into now, which is the eight-limb system of yoga. And we're going to actually focus primarily on what's called the five yamas. So um, if, if I'm going quickly, if you haven't heard this before, this is all researchable. This is something I'd really invite you to go deeper into. I'm just going to really go through the brushstrokes in my own perspective, my own adaptation of these principles in practical terms and how you can use them in your life. And um, by the way, I'm not a yoga expert. I'm not a yoga teacher. I practice yoga periodically. I got into practicing yoga about five or six years ago. And um, I've been a martial artist my entire life since I was four years old. So I have an affinity towards this kind of information. I grew up in Eastern kind of philosophy and mysticism. So I'm predisposed to this. I have a deep understanding and I can cross pollinate these principles quicker than most people because I was raised in the foundation of a lot of this stuff. Um, so this makes perfect sense to me. And I've been studying this for quite some time, particularly these principles that I want to share with you. So let's get into the eight limb system of yoga. And the eight limbs are principles. They're principles to help you, you know, to help you um, direct your mental and emotional energy towards a unified goal. And whatever the goal is that you are doing yoga for, yoga is really about unification. That's really what actually the word loosely translates into is union. So union with yourself. Um, the word namaste you know, is loosely an interpretation of the divine in me, sees the divine in you. So it's kind of this, this topic came up in the last episode with this unification of complementary opposites. And that's what union is, whether it's masculine, feminine, it's hydrogen and oxygen. It's, it's this, this acknowledgement of the complementary nature of reality. So let's get into this. So number one, the yamas are rules of moral code and include um, ahimsa, satya, asteya, brahmacharya, and aparagara. I'm totally butchering that, by the way. I'm just speeding through this, so I apologize to you, the Puritans, the, the, the yogic Puritans. Um, I totally apologize for any of these I'm butchering. Again, I'm not a yoga expert. Um, I'm sharing principles that I think are very important for all of us to implement. So um, those are what we're going to focus on. I'm much better at the interpretation of what they mean than I am at the at pronoun pronouncing some of these words. So just forgive me for that. 
And then the, the niyamas or the niyama are rules of personal behavior, including what's called purity, contentment, discipline or austerity, spiritual studies, and constant devotion to God or the divine. You have asana refers to yogic postures. Um, it's really referred to mastering the body in order to sit still for meditation. So one of the interesting things about like the pure teachings of yoga and the asanas or physical postures is that it's not just a posture to for the posture's sake. Apparently, it's a posture and all these postures are ultimately designed to help you become more comfortable with being uncomfortable so you can sit still in meditation longer. That's an interesting so it's like, yeah, that's a, that's just a very interesting perspective that I picked up recently. Pranayama are yogic breathing techniques designed to control prana or vital life force. So when we talk about life force cultivation, we're talking about the prana, right? Pranayama. We're talking about we're talking about devoting or or, or developing and cultivating life force energy, which ultimately is a, is channeled through the conduit of our breath. Pratyahara means withdrawal of the external senses, so tapping deep within. Um, Dharyana refers to concentration, so mental focus. Dhyana is the practice of meditation, right? Similar. Samadhi is merging with the divine. So samadhi, you've probably heard this like, satori or samadhi experiences those are the experiences of total oneness i've had many of those experiences many on plant medicines but also many just through meditation or just through doing something i love and this emergence feeling of of oneness or just being in the flow being in a flow state for example okay so now that we've gone over that and i've i've effectively butchered some of the pronunciations of those names again apologies ahead of time Hopefully, this will make up for that. And what I want to go through are the five yamas of yoga, which to me, I have a proclivity for. I actually wrote uh, wrote a good amount about this in my book, The Inner Alchemy Youthening Program, in the chapter called Prosperity Consciousness. So, you know, there's so much we can go into here. I want to start with a quote from Paramahansa Yogananda, which he wrote the famous book, An Autobiography of a Yogi. And he says that yoga is a method for restraining the natural turbulence of thoughts, which otherwise impartially prevent all men of all lands from glimpsing their true nature of spirit. Yoga cannot know a barrier of East and West any more than does the healing and equitable light of the sun. Paramahansa Yogananda. So, I'm going to take a breath for a second. Getting into the five yamas. Let's start with ahimsa. This is the first thing that I learned many, many years ago. It's one of the main principles of vegetarianism. And one of the reasons I resonate with the Vedic system is that you're talking about a culture, a Hindu culture, for at least 5,000 years that we know about, have been living predominantly a vegetarian, um, principled life. 
And what they found out was that they needed a fat source, which was where the, the, the sacred cow came in and the butter, the ghee butter came in on, but they did not kill the cow. The cow was sacred. They had a relationship with it, just like a family member, um, which is a beautiful thing. And they, they were able to pull off a predominantly vegan and vegetarian, vegetarian really is where that middle ground came. And that's also something that I tell people when they're looking to be a long-term vegan or raw foodist. It's like, yeah, that, that's a great intention. However, you know, have a backup plan because there is going to be a time where you need backup reserves, especially from a fat source. And look to the Hindu culture because they have some, tri- some tips and tricks that they learned um, to pull this off, to, you know, to, to basically live by the principle of the ahimsa. So the basic understanding of the Ahimsa philosophy is to do no harm to sentient beings as a way of existing in the world. This is only one level of the Sanskrit translation, however. It provides the main context for its core meaning. Another level of it is to do no harm to others and to do no harm to ourselves. This includes not harming others or ourselves through physical actions, as well as violent or disharmonious thoughts and toxic emotions. These words of the Buddha encapsulate the essence of the Ahimsa. So the Buddha said, the thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought. In its ways with care, and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. As the shadow follows the body, as we think, so we become. So the Ahimsa really is a core foundation because it's not only do no harm to others, but it's also do no harm to ourselves. And that also means not restricting ourselves of vital nutrients in food sources that we may need temporarily in our process. So if somebody does need meat or they do need fish or they do need animal fats for whatever reason, I've learned this the hard way and it continues to come up. And people will use, especially vegans will use like, well, it says in the the Vedic text, do no harm to others. Yes, that is true, but do no harm to thyself. So if you're hurting yourself by not hurting others, you're actually not you're not living the code accurately. You're living a half truth. And so it's take care of ourselves first so we can we can basically exist with our cup running over. So we come from abundance and well in a, in a, a sufficient life force and then we have more to give. Uh, so I love that. The second principle is the satya The basic understanding of the satya in the Sanskrit translation is truth. So this is living by truth. This refers to the alignment or congruency within our thoughts, words, and deeds, our actions. This may be one of the most challenging virtues to uphold as culturally conditioning, as cultural conditioning has created a type of human conditioning to think one way, speak another way, and act in a completely different way, right? We call that cognitive dissonance, where our thoughts are counteracting our behavior or they're, they're, 
this is self-sabotage, right? When we have thoughts moving in one direction, our belief systems are moving in another, and our actions are completely incongruent with our beliefs and our thoughts and our emotions. That's when we're spread too thin, we're scattered, and we're basically completely out of integrity with self. This virtue helps us remember to anchor in our sincere intentions for the life we truly aspire to live while washing away the false identities or false motivations for the life we were taught to live, right? How many identities, how many masks, how many um, ideologies or dogmas or religious beliefs have we taken on that are not true to our authentic nature? How many false motivations and false identities are we living, right? Glenda Green, in her book, uh, Jesus Lives Without End, or Love Without End, The Sacred Teachings of Jesus, in her book, she says that death is a clearinghouse for false identities. Very, very powerful. The highest explanation of this tenet is restraint and eventually complete disillusion, dissolvement from falsehood, which includes false foods, false careers, false relationships, false intentions, and false lifestyle habits. So ultimately, living in alignment with our truth and not compromising that. The third principle is asteia. Asteia. Again, I apologize for the pronunciation, but the basic understanding of asteia is non-stealing or restraining from taking from others what is not rightfully ours. Oh man, this is a big one. This includes material possessions in the non-material, such as intellectual property, such as blatant plagiarism. This tenet or virtue seems somewhat obvious to most of us, but the nuance can be tempting to overlook as it encourages one to refrain from the thought or general consideration of stealing for any reason. This virtue in particular, in my interpretation, requires the proper context as life is never black and white. However, the basic principle is necessary is, is a necessary focus for living a virtuous life. In a more daily example, this virtue can also mean not to steal or waste another's time by keeping up false identities, perceptions, or agendas as detailed in the satya. This also relates to not stealing or wasting your own energy with improper foods, thoughts, relationships, and wasting one's own time. This is a very deep principle. Once one begins to expand upon all of its implications, it makes it a practice for their daily life. Oh man, this, this brings up a lot in me because I was thinking about this exact thing earlier today on my hike as I was preparing my mind to do this, this talk with you guys. And one of the biggest indiscretions in our society is people-pleasing, seeking approval from other people in society and our peers and our parents and all this stuff. And how much of our time do we waste and give away? And how much of other people's time do we waste and misuse simply because we're not being authentic and upfront with our intentions? So this, this idea here is not just as obvious of like, oh yeah, I'm not going to steal a physical item from somebody, but you know, how much do we steal other people's time or how much do we steal our own time and give it away freely to people that are just wasting our time, 
That to me is one of the biggest obstructions of life force energy. I'm so glad that this came through in this particular principle because if you master this, you, you, have, you have mastered a lot. Okay. Oh, another another one. This this is a big one. Um, Brahmachari. Now I, I could pronounce this so good before for some reason right now. <laughs> I'm not able to. Brahmacharya. Charya. Bra, Brahmacharya. People are laughing at me right now. Anyways, what this really means, and this is a huge, a huge point right here. This was originally referred to as celibacy or even complete chastity before marriage. This is obviously an outdated interpretation of the virtue, which is more or less based on cultural rules and not entirely representative of the essence of this teaching. So let's go further into this. It is indeed one of the single most important principles to consider as it impacts all areas of our life, including our sexual health, our primordial energy, our jing and our ojas, our brain power, our creativity, our sleep cycles, while also simultaneously impacting the subtle perceptions we have about ourselves. Brahmacharya teaches, uh, it teaches us to conserve our sexual energy and overall creative energy, which is thought to be better spent on connecting with our creator, our higher power. In Hinduism, the word Brahmacharya translates into behaviors which lead to Brahman. Another way of thinking of this virtue is cultivating the right use of our energy, which means abstaining from temporary gratification or pleasure that leaves us that leaves one feeling empty, depleted, and craving more in order to feel satisfied. This is not so much about restraining oneself from pleasure as it is about developing a deeper connection with one's own soul and finding peace with ourselves. Okay, that's that's huge. This is one of the biggest areas of challenge and difficulty for all of us is this, the, the avoidance of pain to seek pleasure, addiction, pleasure, reward, pain, pain, rep, repercussion, um, or repri, uh, was, or whatever the, the, the pain, pleasure, reward syndrome. This has a lot to do with dopamine, dopaminergic pathways. This has a lot to do with serotonin. If you're dopamine or serotonin deficient, you are going to go more into immediate gratification and addictive compulsion cycles. And basically what this principle is talking about is that the true path to healing, the true path to transformation and liberation of one's own being essentially is to restrain from immediate gratification and practice discipline with delayed gratification. This is the true essence of success in anything is delayed gratification, delaying gratification, delaying immediate pleasure so you can actually discipline yourself through difficulty and discomfort which leads to true satisfaction as a, as a character development trait. We live in a world, especially the pseudo kind of conscious spiritual circles is like it's all about pleasure. It's all about pleasure and yes, there is a very important thing to be said about pleasure. Pleasure is important. And we need to, a lot of us actually need to ad, 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 adapt more to experiencing pleasure, but it's very addictive and it's not the path to, it's not the entire path to liberation. Um, having an orgasm, having a, 
a pleasurable, emergent response that floods the nervous system and, and frees you of that, that uh, adaptation or normalization to pain and discomfort is key. But to strengthen oneself through yogic principles, which is what these are, these are yogic principles, to become more comfortable in discomfort is really a true path to mastery. And then the pleasure, it can be more sustained. You know, you can sustain pleasure um, more effectively. So I'm going to just continue on this. There's one more point I want to talk about that I added on to this principle. So in the classic book, Think and Grow Rich by author Napoleon Hill, he devoted an entire chapter to what he called sexual transmutation. This concept teaches us to redirect our sexual energies into more creative and productive channels of expression where our seeds can be used to birth our dreams instead of being wasted on momentary desires. And that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is essentially the crux of everything I just said. He shared valuable insights on the power of our sexual energy for manifesting our dreams and the connection between the most successful entrepreneurs in the world who practice this virtue. This principle is discussed throughout all spiritual and religious texts in one way or another. This topic can go much further into the realms of modern-day pornography and extremely concerning issues arising such as porn-induced erectile dysfunction, otherwise known as PIED, and a general dissatisfaction for real-life sexual encounters in comparison to the fabricated virtual reality of online pornography. This virtue is very important for every alchemist to consider and to learn how to transmute their reproductive procreative drive for producing magic and miracles in the world. Need I say any more? We are going to be doing an entire episode in a couple episodes from now on this one topic. So we'll be diving a lot deeper into that. Okay, the last principle is a, a paragraha. For some reason, I feel like I'm being put on the spot when I'm just by myself. I can say these things completely correctly. A paragraha. Um, the basic understanding of a paragraha is non-possessiveness, non-greediness, or non-hoarding. This virtue can be viewed as a way of letting go of who we believe ourselves to be and opening up to the revelations of who we truly are in order to exist beyond our self-created limitations of identity. This is a fundamental principle in the understanding of alchemy because nothing ever stays exactly the same. Everything is subject to change, and the more we insist upon things remaining static, the more tension, frustration, and pain we experience. The principle of non-hoarding I find uniquely fascinating as it relates to the endless amount of coping mechanisms that we have access to in order to medicate ourselves with in order to avoid ourselves. This is the core problem in our world, and this can only be remedied through abstaining from that which we do not really need, or in many cases, simply desire. This issue goes deeper into the core identity we have created for ourselves and the the associated habit patterns that hold said identity in place. Okay, so a paragraha essentially is saying that Abstaining from that which we don't need, 
Again, this comes back to delayed gratification, and this is a principle in fasting, intermittent fasting, and cyclic fasting principles. This is why fasting has been built into every longevity strategy, not just because of the fact that fasting induces something called autophagy or autophagy, which is the process of recycling and metabolizing undigested proteins to tap into our ketogenic fat-based fat supply, which is associated with longevity. Besides that, but the character development, the virtue development aspect of it is that we live in a culture based on addiction, compulsive consumerism, and just hoarding. So this is about alleviating the non-essentials, refining our character and refining our external possessions So we're not obsessing over possessing and controlling people and things where we're letting go of things that we don't need so we can be lighter, we can operate more on levity instead of gravity, and we essentially de-age ourselves because we're not overburdened by the weight of our possessions. We're not being possessed by our possessions. We only have and obtain or consume that which we need in any given moment. And, uh, wow. And with all of this said, this is my take. This is my perspective on the Ayurvedic and the yogic wisdom that I think is so essential for all of us to meditate on and integrate into our lifestyles, whatever those lifestyles may be. And that's all I got for you. That, that was a, that was a load right there. That was monumental, load of of things and information that has been consolidated over many years on my part and now delivered and synthesized for the benefit of all of you. So there you go. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. We dove very, very deep. Um, And I really, I don't have anything else to really add to that. You know, listen to this again. If you want to go deeper into a lot of these principles, my book, The Holistic Health Mastery Program, goes deeper into eating for your function, which talks a lot more about the gunas and the Ayurvedic perspective. My book, The Inner Alchemy Youthening Program, really goes deeper into the other perspectives that we talked about, as well as the Taoism and, and the spiritual metaphysical aspect and alchemy and all that, all that cool stuff. So uh, there it is. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode. And uh, I look forward to keeping this this show going with all of you. So that's it for me. Um, I will uh, connect with you on the next episode.